0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemists. Welcome to episode number 274 of the Natural Born Alchemists podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. On the day this episode is released, we celebrate Halloween. This so called holy day steeped in commercialism is a remnant of a much older celebration concerning the end of summer. Something called Samhain which is an old Gaelic Celtic celebration. Hello? Weird. Anyway. Samhain was seen as a liminal time when the boundary between this world and the other world could more easily be crossed. This meant the spirits or the fairies could more easily come into our world. It sounds like an excellent day, I think, to have a little psychedelic ritual, right? I mean, if... Halloween or Samhain is a day when the boundary between this world and the fairyland world is easier to cross well maybe that is a good day to do some shrooms for instance
1: hello anyone there
0: Begone, spirit Begone! gone Christ compels you Christ compels you, be gone! <laughs> anyway, Samhain was seen as a liminal time, uh, as I said, and uh, it sounds like an excellent day to have a little psychedelic ritual, right? Here's a short bit uh, that I want to play by Terence McKenna uh, about what he had to say about fairyland.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's a very good point. The perfect example of it in terms of a cultural tradition is uh, uh, Fairyland. Uh, Fairyland is um, the pre-Christian Celtic peoples believed that dead souls stayed around in the immediate vicinity and that there were thousands of them all around, the accumulated dead, uh, very much in the way that when you smoke DMT then there are thousands of these things and it raises the question, were they always there or or what's going on? St. Patrick who uh, brought Christianity to Ireland found this belief And also Anita makes the point about sensitivity. In Irish folklore there's the idea that if you have the eye you can see these things uh, and no drugs are required. It's a psychic ability uh, which the country Celtic people have sometimes uh, claimed. So when Patrick came to Ireland on his mission of conversion, he found this belief in fairyland so powerfully entrenched in these people that he invented purgatory. Purgatory was invented by Saint Patrick to convert the Irish. And then when word was carried back to Rome that Patrick, who was this great bishop of the early church, that he had made this doctrinal concession to Celtic folk thinking. The Pope thought it was such a fine idea that they just wrote it into dogma. So, uh, purgatory which, as you all know, is neither heaven nor hell, but a place where you expiate your sins for some amount of time before you pass on to heaven, is nothing less than a cleaned-up version of fairyland written in to Christian theology. Now, I don't know why the Celtic people would have a, not a monopoly, but a firm grip, on this, I mean, it may be their innate gloominess, their obsession with death, their uh, uh, it's called the agambite of inwit. It's that we just chew on ourselves till we dissolve. But there was something about that character that set it up for perceiving uh, these entities, although in all traditions, all over the world, Uh, If you dig deep enough, you can usually find a tradition of small people that live in the hills or under the hills, meaning graves, right, under the hills. And they are the ancestors and the the best that straight folklorists can tell is they have some weird law that as the people recedes into time, they shrink which seems to me preposterous. I mean, I just don't understand that. I think that the evidence is pretty good that this is going on. The fact that DMT is um, a naturally occurring neurotransmitter is very suggestive. Rupert Sheldrake has made the suggestion that dying is a unique chemical experience. And he calls DMT a necrotic hallucinogen. That, that you actually, the, if you are truly dying, your brain will be flooded with DMT. And then you will see the ecology of souls waiting to receive you. I once questioned a very well-known Tibetan teacher uh, about what was going on in DMT, and he said, yes, these are the lesser lights. He said, you can't, if you go further than that, you will break the thread of connection and be unable to return. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think this is the most challenging idea to us on the conscious and unconscious level, because we may, you know, I mean, I'm only speaking for myself, but it seems to me true that we really have, at a profound level, accepted the scientific lie that death is non-entity, you know? And it, it gives us, it's a permanently weakening idea, because it makes us each such a finite being. I mean, it means that no matter what you do, eventually, you know, It will all end in the cold, cold ground, you know? Always at my back I hear Time's winged chariot hurrying near This coyness lady would be no crime Had we but world enough and time the grave's a lovely private place, but none do there, I think, embrace. Well, maybe Andrew Marvel was wrong. Maybe there's more fun on the uh, other side than uh, you might wish to be congealed. Anybody, save me from myself. <laughs>
0: Now since these days Halloween is more related to ghouls and goblins, I thought I'd share some of my favorite horror films. Films I recommend you check out. I don't watch horror so much these days. My most horrific psychedelic ceremonies have left me with the only scars I need if I want to feel scared. However, these horror films I want to share are not necessarily scary. They just belong to the horror genre. And I want to recommend three films.
1: My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood.
0: Martin is a psychological horror film from 1978, written and directed by George A. Romero and starring John Amples. Its plot follows a troubled young man who believes himself to be a vampire. Romero is most famous for creating the zombie genre with films like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. But it is Martin that is his greatest masterpiece, in my opinion. The plot of the film revolves around this guy called Martin, and he is entirely convinced that he is an 84-year-old blood-sucking vampire, without fangs or mystical powers. Instead, Martin injects women with sedatives and drinks their blood through wounds inflicted with razor blades. After moving to Braddock, Pennsylvania, to live with his superstitious uncle who also believes Martin is a vampire, Martin tries to prey exclusively on criminals and thugs, but stumbles when he falls for a housewife. If you want to experience an unusual vampire film that is not only original but clever, I suggest you check out George A. Romero's film
2: Martin. Haunting, mysterious, sensual, strange,
1: perverse, riveting. The Hunger.
0: The Hunger is an erotic horror film from 1983 directed by Tony Scott starring Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. The plot is about a love triangle between a doctor who specializes in sleep and aging research and a vampire couple. The film is a loose adaption of the 1981 novel of the same name by Whitley Strieber. This is also an unusual vampire film with a great and horrific ending that I won't spoil. David Bowie is excellent as a vampire, a very suitable role for him. I highly recommend The Hunger.
1: Close your eyes. Tell me what you see. It was my fault. I want to die too.
2: Oh, Stay with me, stay with me.
0: Your thoughts distort reality. That's what fear is. I love you.
1: Darkness comes early down here. I heard a sound. The cry of all the things that are to die. The ground is
2: burning. The ground is not burning. I've just
0: been having a lot of crazy dreams.
2: <laughs> Do you
1: love me? Help me. <laughs>
0: Finally I want to recommend Antichrist, now, Antichrist is a 2009 experimental psychological horror film written and directed by the legendary Lars von Trier, starring William Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg. It tells the story of a couple who after the death of their child retreat to a cabin in the woods where the man experiences strange visions and the woman manifests increasingly violent sexual behavior and sadomasochism. It is a very eerie and unsettling film, yet it has some amazing beauty within it. I really love this film and it also has a very disturbing and graphic scene that you would probably look away when it occurs. And you just got to watch the film to know what I mean. But I'm sure you're not going to doubt what I'm talking about. So if you want to have a nice evening with three great films, I suggest you watch Martin, The Hunger and Antichrist. And you should watch them in that order as well, back to back. I'm sure you will have a splendid evening. All right, that's it. I know this one is pretty short. But hey, sometimes I ain't got more to share. Play the
1: break story. Huh? Play fuck, fuck off.
0: Break story. I'm finishing this episode now. Play, it. Play it. What Alright, alright, alright. Okay, fine. Okay. Here is an amazing story of a real Japanese prison break. Audio taken from the YouTube channel Kento Bento.
2: I really love this one. Aomori, Japan, 1936. Prisoner Yoshie Shiratori had had enough. He was forced to confess to a murder he did not commit. Falsely imprisoned in Aomori prison. Beaten and tortured every night by prison guards. And now worse, prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. In his mind, it was time to go. But Aomori prison wasn't the easiest to escape. Regardless, Yoshie Shiratori had nothing to lose, and so at 5.30 a.m. he made his move. He knew there would be a 15-minute gap in the patrol time as he had studied the guard's routine for months, and when the coast was clear, he pulled out a metal wire which he had smuggled in from the bathhouse and started to pick the lock. This was originally the metal support ring that was wrapped around the bathing buckets inmates used to wash themselves. His hands were stiff from the wintry cold, but after a few minutes of picking, He had success and his cell door swung open, but he wasn't out of the woods yet because there were more locked doors ahead. He knew he only had a few minutes left before the guards would return, and so he wasted no time attempting to pick his way through the remaining security doors. Now, fortunately for him, he was able to make it out of the facility, but the bad news was that he was only halfway to freedom. You see, he was still well within the search perimeter, which meant at any moment the alarm could go off and he'd still be caught. At 5.45 am, the guards returned, peering into his cell, and this is what they saw. Shiratori sound asleep in his futon bed. But of course, what they didn't realize was that they were looking at something else, a pile of loose floorboards underneath his duvet designed to trick them. It wasn't until the next morning that they finally discovered the truth and the alarm was sounded. But by then, Shiratori was long gone. Now, he had escaped. But if you've watched any of our previous videos, you'll know that things aren't always as they seem. In fact, for Yoshie Shiratori, aka the prison break magician, this was only the beginning. Three days later, he was caught trying to steal supplies from a hospital. And just like that, he was back in the slammer. But this time, for his escape attempt, he was sentenced to life in prison. He would never be with his family again, his wife and his daughter. And all the months of planning had led to just three days of freedom. It now seemed he'd be locked up for a very long time. Six years later, in 1942, in the midst of the Second World War, Shiratori found himself transferred to Akita Prison in Akita City. There, the guards treated him even worse than in Aomori. They had heard about Shiratori's previous escape and were determined to make an example out of him. They wanted to make sure he would never escape again. Along with the usual beatings, he was forced to partake in extreme manual labor, made to sleep on the hard concrete floor in the severe winter cold, and placed into solitary confinement for extended periods of time. Now this was a specially made solitary confinement cell, which was very small and had a very high ceiling, with the walls covered with copper sheets so smooth that it was impossible to grip. In addition, there was almost no sunlight even in the daytime, with the only window light coming from a small sealed skylight high above. This was a room designed to keep escape artists from escaping, and if that wasn't enough, the guards also made sure that Shiratori was handcuffed at all times. Now, despite the constant abuse, one of the guards, Kobayashi, in fact the head guard, took pity on him. Kobayashi never laid a finger, and even seemed to check up on him from time to time, concerned for his well-being. Perhaps this made life a little more bearable for Shiratori, and it might have even been what kept his will alive all the way to the night of June 15th. It was a stormy night and Shiratori was in the middle of one of his extended stays in solitary confinement. At around midnight, one of the guards peered into his cell and couldn't believe his eyes. He opened the cell door and looked around in astonishment as Yoshie Shiratori had vanished into thin air. All that was left was his handcuffs. So how did he do it? Well, there were a few assumptions the guards made that did not apply to Shiratori. For one, Handcuffs simply didn't work on him. Shiratori was actually a master of getting out of handcuffs and, in fact, had several methods to choose from. Here, he decided to go with the familiar lock-picking method, but he really could have gone with any of them. He had thoroughly scoured his surroundings to find anything that could be of use in an escape, and just like in Aomori Prison, he was able to uncover a loose bit of wire. Perhaps it was from one of the items Kobayashi brought him, but this wasn't clear. After freeing himself from the cuffs, he placed his palms and soles of his feet on the smooth copper sheets and started climbing the unclimbable wall. It turned out Shiratori was also an expert climber with an uncanny ability to scale like a lizard. Once he reached the skylight above, he noticed that, yes, the window was sealed, but the wooden framing around it was starting to rot. And so thereafter, night after night, when the guards weren't looking, he'd climb the copper walls and loosen the framing bit by bit. Afterwards, he'd climb back down and place the handcuffs back on, as to not rouse suspicion. After a couple months, the window finally came loose, and from there, it was just about choosing the right day. He waited until a particular stormy night, so the guards wouldn't hear the footsteps on the roof, and that was it. He had escaped from prison again. Now this time, he wouldn't be caught, or at least not in the way you'd expect. Three months later, On September 18th, the head guard, Kobayashi, was at home when he heard a knock on the door. To his surprise, it was the fugitive Yoshie Shiratori, unkempt and disheveled, and he needed a favor. A stunned Kobayashi took him in and fed him, all the while listening to what he had to say. Shiratori explained that he didn't actually mind being in prison, and that the only reason he escaped twice now was due to the tremendous abuse he suffered at the hands of the sadistic guards. Kobayashi, however, was the only one who treated him with any amount of respect, and so he felt he owed it to him to let him in on his grand plan. Now, this plan involved Shiratori willingly, yes, handing himself over to the Justice Department, where he could then personally make a case for how corrupt and barbaric the Japanese prison system was and there needed to be reform. He wanted to campaign for change and in the process gain his legal freedom through a civil lawsuit. He felt this was the only way he could realistically end up with his family. This of course was a super ambitious plan and as a fugitive on the run he was well aware of that. Which is why he needed Kobayashi, the well-respected head guard of Akita prison, to vouch for him to strengthen his credibility. As the only guard who ever treated him right, he had a feeling Kobayashi would do the right thing. Minutes later, while Shiratori was in the toilet, Kobayashi called the police. Maybe not a great plan. Just like that, Shiratori was back in prison, and this time, he vowed never to trust an officer of the law again. For the second escape, the courthouse added three more years to his life sentence. Now Shiratori requested to be sent to a Tokyo prison where the weather was warmer as he couldn't stand the cold in the northern prisons. His previous stints had weakened him severely but he was denied his request. Instead, the judge sentenced him to the infamous Abashiri prison in Hokkaido, the northernmost prison in Japan. No man had ever escaped from this wintry hellhole of a prison. It was now 1943 and the cold was unbearable in Abashiri as the temperature in the cells was below freezing point. Whenever inmates received their prison food, the miso soup and soy sauce would often freeze up. In this temperature, a handcuffed Shiratori was thrown into an open cell in summer clothing and he immediately felt the paralyzing sting of cold air. Perhaps in a fit of desperation, he tried to force himself past the guards, but they were able to push him back and beat him down. An enraged and defiant Shiratori stood back up and vowed that he would escape from Abashiri Prison, like he's always done, and that there was nothing they could do about it. In fact, he claimed there was little point even putting handcuffs on him, as he'd always find a way to break free. If not by lockpicking, then, well, this. He then proceeded to rip apart the chain of his handcuffs to the horror of the guards. It turned out Shiratori had another special ability. Aside from his outstanding climbing abilities, he also possessed incredible strength, almost superhuman strength. Back in Akita Prison, he could have broken free of the cuffs the physical way if he didn't have to put them back on. Now, this was impressive, but it wasn't so smart to lay his cards on the table like that, as the guards were starting to build an escape profile on him. They knew he had lockpicking abilities, lizard-like climbing abilities, and now almost superhuman strength. And so they set out to devise the ultimate escape-proof cell, one that was sure to be Shiratori-proof. And they came up with this. The new cell had steel fixtures with a low chance of rot. Any openings, even the bars removed, were made smaller than his body, meaning there was no way he could physically fit through. He had specially made solid iron handcuffs that tied his hands behind his back, and leg cuffs that made him barely able to stand. These cuffs weighed 20 kgs each and had no keyhole, which meant they could not be lockpicked. And the only way they could be removed was by two metalwork specialists who would come once every few weeks to remove them in an arduous two-hour process. It was at this point, and only this point, that he could even take a bath. And he certainly needed one, as weeks of being shackled up with no movement meant his cuff wounds were infested with maggots. On top of that, and as cold as it had already been, it wasn't even peak winter yet. Any strength he would have left would surely be nullified by the upcoming freeze. Though just in case, they still made sure to cut his already meager food portions in half. And so that was it. Even for Shiratori, this was too much. As winter came, he succumbed to his fate. Every day, the guards would slide his meal through the opening, and he'd be forced to grovel like a dog. His hand and leg cuffs made every action awkward and uncomfortable, with even sleeping being a pain. There was no doubt life in Abashiri prison was absolute torture. Now, fast forward. Shiratori was somehow able to survive through the winter, and spring was coming. This meant he was starting to get his strength back. But still, what could he really do? He was literally in a bind. Months passed and, well, nothing seemed to happen. Then one night, in August, a guard in his office was doing some paperwork when he heard some shuffling on the roof. He wasn't sure what it was, but he decided to check on the prisoners. As he looked inside Shiratori's inescapable cell, he was stunned. The futon bed and prison garments were neatly folded up. The specially made 20kg handcuffs and leg cuffs that would have required two specialists two hours to remove was placed on the side, and Shiratori was nowhere to be seen. He had finally fulfilled his promise to the guards. The alarm immediately sounded, but despite the work of the search party, it seemed he had truly disappeared. But how on earth did this happen? How did he escape from the fortress that was Abashiri prison? Well, preparation had started six months earlier. At the time, he didn't have the strength or stamina to mount any sort of escape, not to mention the restraints he was in. But one thing he did have was time and patience. Every day, the guards would slide his meal through, and while he struggled to eat his food off the floor, he always made sure to save a little bit of the miso soup in the corner. You see, every night he would hobble awkwardly to the inspection window and splash a little of it on the steel frame. He would also dab some on his handcuffs and leg cuffs. Now his intention was for the salt content of the miso soup to oxidize the screws and bolts, eventually corroding and loosening it. After a month, this technique of rusting through the iron actually worked and the first screw came out. The next few months saw screws and bolts coming loose, assisted by the use of the first screw as a sort of screwdriver. By the end of spring he was able to fully remove his handcuffs and leg cuffs as well as the steel frame of the inspection window but there was a problem the size of the opening was smaller than his body which meant he couldn't fit through a contingency thought out by the guards what they didn't account for though was Shiratori's fourth ability which involved being able to dislocate his joints at will with this He was now able to slide through the opening like a caterpillar, this repertoire of skills thus surely making him an honorary member of the X-Men. With that, he climbed through a broken window in the roof and vanished. Impressively, Shiratori had now escaped from three prisons, as well as being the only man to ever escape Abashiri prison. Now, good on him for escaping, but this was northern Hokkaido, and the only direction he could have gone to was the cold, snowy mountains. Actually, the prison guards felt that they had the last laugh because if the cold didn't get him, the mountain bears certainly would. Despite this likelihood, there was one person who stayed hopeful, and that was Shiratori's wife. But she was still worried, because even if he was alive, she knew he wouldn't be able to make it back to his family, as the authorities would be constantly on his tail. Which is why she was desperately and secretly hoping that Japan would lose the war, as that would enable the US to take over the country, meaning everyone would likely forget about her husband. Of course, she kept this to herself, But then, a year later, in August 1945, she got her wish. The Americans had now taken over the country's penitentiary system, and sweeping changes were being made. And it did seem, perhaps, that the manhunt for Yoshie Shiratori had now taken a back seat. Yet the question remained, where was he? And was he even alive? The answer was yes, he was alive and living a solitary life, this time self-imposed. It turned out he had discovered an abandoned mine on a mountainside in the Hokkaido wilderness and was able to make a home for himself. For food, he lived off nuts and berries, wild rabbits and raccoons, and was even able to learn to catch crabs from a stream by observing the habits of bears. Life was steady and safe, but after a while, curiosity got the better of him. And so after two years of isolation, he made his way down the mountain to a nearby village. What he saw astounded him. The streets were filled with signs written in English. The posters and flags, emblematic of the war effort, had vanished. And even more strange, young Japanese girls were holding hands with American soldiers. What on earth was going on? He grabbed a newspaper that had been set aside, flipped through the pages, and it was only then that he found out about the atomic bombs. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan had surrendered the previous year and he couldn't believe it. As with his wife, he felt it was now pointless to hide and so bid farewell to his old hunter-gatherer lifestyle. He headed south of Abashiri for the next 50 days until he reached the city of Sapporo. At this point he was starving so he found himself a nice ripe tomato from a nearby field which was a huge mistake. A farmer had spotted him and mistook him for a well-known local thief, which led to a scuffle resulting in the farmer's abdomen being pierced by a blade. Sadly, he bled out and died, but not before Shiratori was arrested for the crime. It wasn't long until police found out that they in fact had the infamous Yoshie Shiratori in their custody. For his multiple escapes and having now murdered the farmer, despite his claims of self-defense, he was sentenced to death by the District Court of Sapporo and in 1947, he was sent to Sapporo Prison to await execution. Now, to ensure he wouldn't escape this time while on death row, he was placed under 24-hour surveillance, with six armed guards personally assigned to his watch. As for the cell itself, it was upgraded further from the one in Abashiri Prison, with reinforced doors, ceilings, bars, windows. In fact, any openings were made smaller than the size of his head, not just his body, learning from the Abashiri escape as while he may be able to dislocate his joints, he certainly can't dislocate his skull. As long as his head can't fit, they were good. The six guards were so confident, in fact, that they didn't even bother cuffing him. Now Shiratori was getting old, and the odds of escaping by this point were looking slim. As his execution loomed near, there was little he could really do, and the guards knew that. They could see the desperation on his face, looking up, searching for an escape plan that they knew would never come. Though still, just in case, they made sure to search his room every night while he was taking a bath, in the bathhouse, inspecting the ceiling, skylight, and any other openings. A month passed, and winter was now coming, weakening him further, and the realization was starting to dawn on him. He grew increasingly despondent, staying in bed, refusing to wake up, despite the orders of the guards. This went on for a while, until one morning, the guards had enough, and entered the cell to discipline him. They flipped over the duvet and he was gone. This was not possible. How did he do it this time? Going back to when he was first placed under 24 hour surveillance with the six armed guards personally assigned to his watch. He had in fact conditioned them to look up and keep up from the very start. Not just because his previous escape attempts involved climbing through skylight windows on ceilings, but also his suspicious yet, as it turned out, very intentional behavior of constantly looking up to figure out an escape plan. Little did they know it was all an act and that he already had one, but it would be taking place precisely where they weren't looking. You see, it turned out the authorities were so concerned with him escaping through a window or skylight that they neglected to reinforce the bottom. This ironically ended up being his easiest and simplest escape, because all he had to do was remove the bolted floorboards, which wasn't easy, but he had experience, and, using random cutlery and a miso soup bowl, dig his way to freedom. This took over a month, and he was able to hide his activities due to A, the guards not suspecting this approach, and B, the floorboard panels being put back in place every night after digging. The six guards thought they were keeping a good eye on him, even at night, but with the hole consistently positioned underneath the futon and duvet, and it increasingly becoming the norm to refuse the orders of the guards to wake up, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Placing a pile of loose floorboards underneath the duvet to trick them was also a callback to his first prison escape in Almori. So he had now escaped from prison four times. And by this point, the story is starting to get ridiculous. But this perpetual cycle of capture and escape, capture and escape was about to end. Because a year later, in 1948, Shiratori was exhausted. He was in his 40s now, and this was a young man's game. One day in the Kotoni neighborhood, still in Sapporo, as he stopped to rest, a policeman just happened to sit by his side for a smoke. He didn't know who Shiratori was, but he struck up a conversation with him. Shiratori, of course, was wary of his presence and tried to play it cool, all the while attempting to figure out a way to remove himself from the situation without being suspicious. Suddenly, the policeman did something unexpected, at least to him. He pulled out another cigarette and offered it to him. Shiratori was stunned. You see, cigarettes were expensive luxury items in Japan at the time, and the fact that someone offered it to him just out of the kindness of his heart brought tears to his eyes not to mention all his life he had been abused and mistreated by officers of the law, with even the head guard Kobayashi turning his back on him. And here was an instance of an officer treating him kindly, with respect, and with no prejudgment. As he smoked the cigarette, Shiratori couldn't help but tell the officer his full name, Yoshie Shiratori, and that he had escaped from Sapporo prison last year. In fact, he had escaped from prison four times in his life. It was strangely a relief to get it all off his chest, and he was even ready for the consequences. After the Kobayashi incident, he had vowed never to trust another officer of the law again. But the simple act of receiving a cigarette from a stranger broke him. Of course, he was arrested again. But this time, things were different. Maybe it was the fact that he willingly gave himself up, or that Japan's justice system was going through a change. But the High Court of Sapporo became sympathetic to Shiratori's plight, and some of his past claims were recognized, such as acknowledging the farmer's death as a legitimate case of self-defense. They also made note that throughout all four of his prison escapes, he didn't kill or injure a single guard, despite the abuse he may have suffered at their hands. At the end of the deliberation, the High Court dismissed the murder charge, revoking his death sentence, and instead sentenced him to just 20 years in prison. Further, they approved his request to be transferred to a Tokyo prison, where the weather was warmer, he was getting what he wanted. In Tokyo, he was sent to Fuchu Prison, where, for the first time, the guards actually treated him well. It was a weird feeling. There were all these precautions and security measures in place to ensure that the infamous prison break magician wouldn't escape. But the truth was, Shiratori didn't really care anymore. Everything he'd been fighting against, the mistreatment from guards, the death penalty, even the northern climate, was no longer of concern and he was at peace. There was no need to escape anymore. He finally accepted his punishment and for the remainder of his sentence, acted as a model prisoner. Just 14 years later, in 1961, he was released on parole. And for the first time in a long time, he was truly a free man. He decided to head back to Almori, where it all began, and meet up with his daughter, who by this point, unfortunately, was the only family member he had left. For his incredible escapes, Yoshie Shiratori became a legend, an anti-hero in Japan.
0: I love a good prison break story. I guess that's because reality can feel like a prison sometimes, and psychedelics is an escape, or at least a way to see behind the curtain. I remember I had a friend over, and he smoked some of my DMT, And he said when he came out of the experience, life is freedom, life is prison. And he kept repeating that over and over again. And I asked him if that was something he uh, had invented himself. And he said, no, 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 that's what the DMT told me. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Even though it was pretty short and uh, not so focused. But hey, sometimes shit happens now please be so kind and follow the podcast in social media you can find it under the name natural born alchemist or born alchemist on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and why don't you leave a nice five-star review on iTunes that would really help out I'm aware that you might listen to this in the far distant future but when this episode was released it was still Halloween so let's end with a warning. Freedom is in the mind.